This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Country. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, the explosion in vaping and why some public health experts are calling for a ban on retail sales, the growing epidemic of short-sightedness and what could be done about it. How health and life expectancy gaps go far beyond Indigenous communities and how they affect children. And continuing our coverage of the controversial decision by the Therapeutic Goods Administration to approve the use of psychedelics, psilocybin and MDMA for treatment-resistant depression and PTSD, respectively. Yeah, we've had experts on the show expressing concern about the decision being premature and ahead of the evidence. So last week I said on the show that we tried to get the TGA on to explain themselves. Well, RN's background briefing beat us to it with a compelling episode which dropped over the weekend and I urge you to listen to it. Reported by Jeff Thompson and Annika Blau, they found that one psychiatric entrepreneur intends to charge tens of thousands of dollars for the treatment, that the head of the charity pushing the use of these drugs, Mind Medicine Australia, is a shareholder in that business, and that the TGA actually approved the use of these drugs against the advice of peak bodies like the College of Psychiatrists and against the advice of their expert advisory committee. In fact, the head of the TGA on background briefing, Professor John Skerritt, while admitting to being badgered by Mind Medicine Australia, seemed proud of the decision made by a secret person in the TGA called the delegate, who in fact is a person delegated by the Secretary of the Department of Health to decide such matters. Professor Skerritt is talking here to Jeff Thompson. Normally when you reschedule a medicine, say, from a prohibited drug to a controlled drug, that medicine can just be sold on any doctor's prescription pad in any pharmacy in the country. And we all know that while most doctors and pharmacists do the right thing, they're, like every profession, there are some extremes who we may have worried about safety and oversight issues with. The internal legal advice was that it was quite appropriate to put and legal to put this additional level of oversight called the Authorised Prescriber Scheme. And that meant that there could be safeguards that hadn't been contemplated in the application from Mind Medicine Australia. The second thing that happened was a very convincing study published in one of the world's top medical journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, that came out in November. They were really, I think, the two factors that influenced the delegate's mind. So that's Professor John Skerritt there. Norman, what's this New England Journal paper that he talks about there? Well, interestingly, it was a phase two study, which is actually um, not normally what the TGA would approve any drug on. They would wait for a phase three study, which is actually showing effectiveness in a decent population. Phase two is really about dose finding. And here's part of what an accompanying editorial in the New England Journal said, and I quote, the findings are both intriguing and sobering. The highest dose, 25 milligrams, but not the intermediate dose, 10 milligrams, resulted in significant low, significantly lower levels of depressive symptoms after three weeks than the lowest dose. But the 37% incidence of response with the 25 milligram dose was numerically lower than that in large trials of conventional antidepressants for major depression, and less robust than in a small pilot study involving participants with treatment-resistant depression, or a larger study showing similar efficacies of psilocybin and a selective serotonin reuptake inverter, in other words, a standard antidepressant. 
And uh, then they went on to say adverse events were observed in 72% of people on one milligram, 84% on on 25 milligrams, that's the highest dose, with a few in the 10 milligram and 25 milligram groups reporting suicidal ideation or self-injurious behaviour. So am I right in interpreting that as being that there were some good effects, but it's still quite small numbers and there's still people in those groups who are having pretty... uh, dangerous um, feelings. Yeah, and that um, on some evidence, it's no better than standard antidepressants. Mm. So it looks like there are still questions to be answered. The health report has been on air since 1985, and there's little doubt that the person who's had the most return visits in that time has been Michael Marmot, who's now Sir Michael Marmot. I'd like to take personal responsibility for his knighthood, but I don't think I can. Michael is Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health and Director of the Institute of Health Equity at University College London, but he trained in medicine in Sydney. His life's work has been devoted to the social gradient, the factors which explain why wherever you look, there's a gradient in health, well-being and longevity according to where you live, how much money's in your pocket, and how much education you've had, amongst other things. Michael started by looking at the health gap in the British civil service, the social gradient there, but has since expanded that enormously, including major reports into what are called socioeconomic determinants of health, both globally and in the UK. Michael is back in Australia, speaking on how this relates to childhood. Welcome home, Michael. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. How does the gradient play out in children and young people? If we look at one marker, the percent of children age five with a good level of development, what we see uh, in Britain where we've studied this at great length, but we see it everywhere, the more deprived the area in which the kids live, the lower the proportion of children age five with a good level of development. Another way we look at it in Britain is poverty, non-poverty, and poverty, the indicator, is eligibility for free school meals. It's a means-tested benefit. And all over the country, what we see is kids eligible for free school meals, a lower proportion, have a good level of development, age five. What does a lower level of development actually mean? 13 indicators measuring cognitive development, linguistic development, social, emotional, and behavioral development. And that's important because kids who enter school with a good level of development do much better in school. And of course, young people who do better in school go on to have better jobs, higher income, live in better housing, neighborhoods, and all of that contributes to better health. And we can see it beginning in childhood. And progressing through, do they ever catch up? I mean, if, if they... Well, well first of all, you, you've, you've talked about poverty. What are the most important dimensions of the social gradient that seem to determine these poor outcomes in kids at five? Before I get on to later childhood. Sure. Well, what we can study is two aspects of being lower down in the social hierarchy. One is lack of the positive and the other is presence of the negative. Now, what I mean by the first, lack of the positive, if you look, and we've done surveys on this, you ask parents, is it important to cuddle a child age three? And about 20% of parents deny that it's important to cuddle a child age three. 
And that follows the social gradient. The lower the income, the higher the proportion of parents who deny it's important to cuddle a child, to speak to a child, to play, to sing. All of those parenting activities are less common the lower down the social hierarchy. And one needs to be careful because... Well, you're blaming parents. Can, well, blame the parents, you know. So you're saying because I'm poor, I'm a bad parent. Absolutely not. I'm not blaming the parents. I'm blaming poverty. The other part is the negative, And people have studied so-called adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, parental separation, incarceration of parents, domestic abuse of various forms, physical abuse, sexual abuse, psychological abuse, all of mental illness in the parents. We looked at nine adverse childhood experiences, each of which is more common the lower the income, the greater the deprivation. And that has damaging effects on children's mental health and physical health through the subsequent life course. And your impl- is, is the implication here, going back to the questions you asked the parents, and it's certainly true with domestic violence, there's a sense of transmissibility across generations. And if you've experienced this, it's how you behave as a parent. Are, are you getting a sense of transmissibility here from similar uh, environments? Unfortunately, very much so. Uh, let me answer that in two ways. First, the first way is if you look at violent behaviour, If you could prevent people having four or more adverse childhood experiences, you could potentially prevent half the perpetrators of domestic violence and, even more chillingly, half the victims of domestic violence had four or more adverse childhood experiences. So you can see how this violent behaviour transmits through the generations. If you were a victim you're more likely to then be a victim when you grow up. If you were um, involved, you're more likely to be a perpetrator. And if you weren't hugged, you're less likely to hug, presumably. Absolutely. And, And so the second way I want to answer it is what I call intergenerational equity. The fact that we transmit inequalities, inequities, not just across but within the generation but between the generations and let me give you a statistic that i came across recently if you look how many generations does it take to go from low income to median income middle level income in denmark it takes two generations in norway sweden and finland It takes three generations to go from low income to median income. In the United Kingdom and the United States, it takes five generations. In Brazil, it takes nine generations. Now, I've said to Australian colleagues, do you know the answer to that question? And is it different for Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people? Isn't that rather important to know whether... If your parents are low income, you're destined to be low income and what your prospects are for rising out of that condition. So we don't know in Australia. Well, I don't know. And I've challenged Australian colleagues in the few days since I've been here to answer that question. And none of them could. The figures may be available. I just haven't seen them. When you, you spent a lot of time 
particularly in recent years, looking at the policy options to reduce the social gradient or mitigate the social gradient. Uh, and you've got 10, you, you, there's 10 things in your report which are overall, um, look overall at the system. But if you look at children and mitigating this transmissible gradient in well-being, development, and the future of those children when they become adolescents and adults, what are the interventions that we know make a difference? Two kinds of interventions. One is reduce poverty and deprivation. And I think it's highly likely, given the tight relation between degree of deprivation and poor early child development, if you could reduce poverty and deprivation, you would improve outcomes for children, early child development. And the second type is to break the link between poverty and poor early child development. And let me give you an example uh, to come back to the UK. I was in a poor part of East London in Tower Hamlets and also in Hackney. And teachers there said to me, we tell ourselves every day poverty is not destiny. And our mission is to break the link between poverty and early child development. And we focus on it. We um, make sure that the poor kids are not excluded. It's really pretty simple, they said. Just include them. And I said, show me the data. Well, I've now looked at the data. In Tower Hamlets and Hackney, relatively deprived parts of East London, the gap between the poor kids, the children eligible for free school meals, the gap between the poor kids and the average is really tiny. Not because the average is low, the average is high, but because the poor kids in East London are doing really well on early child development. They really have broken the link between deprivation and poor outcomes. Now, why is that? When I talk to people in East London, the Bangladeshi community say, aha, that's us, we did that. Those are our kids, the Bangladeshi kids who are doing better than you would have predicted from their poverty level. When I talk to the teachers, they say, ah, we did that, we focused on it. When I talk to administrative authorities, we say, we did that, we give more money per pupil in London than anywhere else in the country. So it's basically it, the community's doing it. So it may be some combination of funding for education, committed teachers, family cohesion, community. But what it shows is it really is possible to break the link between deprivation and poor child outcomes. So let's hope we get some of that data here in Australia. I think it probably does exist. But let's see. Michael, thank you yet again for coming on to the Health Report. Hopefully there'll be many more times to come. I look forward to it. <laughs> Professor Sir Michael Marmot is Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health at University College London and is also Director of the UCL Institute of Health Equity. In Australia, we consider tobacco control to be one of our success stories. You can't advertise it, the products are in plain packaging, they come with graphic health warnings, and the number of people who smoke has declined steeply over the last few decades. But while smoking has fallen, another product is on the rise, the vape. I think I started in senior years of high school. I started because everyone used to do it, you know. If you sit in a circle, you might as well just join them. It's fun. I think vaping is more social than the cigarettes. I think cigarettes is more of like a 
I don't know, you either smoke cigarettes or you don't. Vaping is kind of like with everyone. Yeah, I vape for social, like um, when, when I'm alone, nah. And would you ever smoke cigarettes? No, I do smoking, uh, but uh, no, I don't like it. It was very fun and it tasted good. And then I got addicted to it. And then I went to Australia and it became worse. And because everyone else was doing it here. Why'd you stop? Uh, health reasons, uh, religious reasons, but ultimately just my health was declining. Our intrepid health report producer Shelby Trainer there was talking to young people about their vaping habits. Vaping in Australia exists in a bit of a legal grey area. Not all vaping products contain nicotine and you're only meant to be able to buy those that do when you've got a prescription and only as an aid to quit smoking. But here's the thing, many of the products in Australia are labelled as being nicotine free or not labelled at all, but tests show that they actually do contain nicotine. Dr. Celine Kelso is an analytical chemist at the University of Wollongong, and she's been investigating the contents of e-cigarettes. We have found uh, that nicotine won't present in pretty much all the disposables that we have uh, tested today. Unfortunately, we kind of expected this. We have seen a disappearance from the labelling of those packaging, so whether it's illiquid or devices especially. Uh, the word nicotine and any associated warning has completely been removed to try to bypass the current legislation that's enforced for the nicotine-containing products. Any users that is not aware whether nicotine is present or not on the packaging as a word or a warning will still contain nicotine, then they will be exposing themselves, especially if a non-smoker or a naive user, to amounts of nicotine, which then will possibly put them on the pathway to addiction. So some experts are calling for a ban on all sales of vaping products other than those prescribed by a doctor. One of those is Dr. Becky Freeman from the University of Sydney. Welcome, Becky. Hi, how are you going? Good. Who's using vaping products? Do we have a sense of what kind of age groups are most represented? Yeah, the majority of people using vaping products are under age 25. We know that they're incredibly popular with teenagers and young adults. And this is, you know, quite contrary to the vaping industry's position that these products are for, you know, older adult smokers who've done everything they can to try and quit and need vaping product access to quit smoking. Right. So why do you think they've taken off so much among young people? It's the nature of the products that we have on the market now. About, you know, 10, 12 years ago when e-cigarettes first appeared, they weren't very sophisticated products. They essentially look like plastic cigarettes. You know, fast forward to today and the cigarette, the e-cigarettes that we have on the market, the vaping products, they're cheap, they're flavored, they're full of nicotine salts, and they're marketed heavily to children. At the moment, nicotine mm-hmm. is addictive. We know that. Yes. If the product doesn't contain it, what are the harms? Well, I I think we just need to start, you know, sort of knock that myth on the head right from the beginning. Nobody is seeking out non-nicotine containing vapes. We don't have an epidemic of young people using non-nicotine vapes. The legislation we have in place in Australia right now means that nicotine vapes are masquerading as non-nicotine. And we know from... uh, research project that I lead called the Generation Vape Study, that young teenagers aged 13 to 17 are preferentially seeking out nicotine-containing vaping products. So really it's just about labelling then. Is, is banning products really all, need, all that needs to happen? Or if it was labelled as what was actually in it, then 
they would just be not available to these to this section of the society anyway. Well, way, the way nicotine is regulated in Australia is that you should only be able to access nicotine-containing products if you have a prescription and you can get them through a pharmacy or you can import them for your own personal use. So all these vaping products that we're seeing for sale in petrol stations, tobacconist, convenience stores have absolutely no right to be there. But when an enforcement officer, let's say in New South Wales, goes out to you know check whether the stores are obeying the letter of the law, they have to seize a sample of that product, send it back to a lab and test it, see if it has nicotine in it or not. And then if it does, they can go back and enforce the law. To me, that just makes no sense. I think that if we were to remove non-nicotine products from the market, make them available only through the pharmaceutical channel, we would not only reduce the availability of these products, but we'd make enforcement much easier as well. Right. So there's a there's a, a lag built into this, which makes it really hard to enforce. So mm. the government's recently released the National Tobacco Strategy 2023 to 2030. Uh, vape, is vaping included in this? Is it going to make a difference? Well, we don't know the government's plans on vaping as of yet. The um, Therapeutic Goods uh, Authority or Administration, pardon me, the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration has also held a consultation on possible reforms to vaping. That consultation uh, closed in um, early 2023, and we're now waiting to hear back on what you know the TGA is going to recommend. My hope is that we will um, obviously have assertive decisions made, that we'll see you know boldness coming out of the government, and that they'll want to clean up this massive loophole that's being exploited by an industry seemingly intent on addicting a whole new generation of Australians to harmful products. So tell me about the policies that you're calling for if you were making the decisions. Mm. Uh, you know, if it was up to me, wouldn't that be nice? Um, mm-hmm. I would love to see the, um, number one, that the importation of all vaping products into Australia, regardless of whether they contain nicotine or not, that those that is prohibited unless they are destined for a pharmacy or someone who has their own sort of personal prescription from a health professional. Then we need the, the states to do their bit too. So that's what the federal government can do immediately. And then we need the states to you know, prohibit the retail sale of non-nicotine products in all our corner shops and our petrol stations so that we don't have this flood of illicit products on the market. We would have those two policies working in concert. We would no longer see, you know, 14-year-olds claiming to have exceptionally easy access to this product, that they can just, you know, essentially walk right up to a convenience store and purchase one if they want. Are you not worried that there would just be a black market for these products then? Yeah, you know, look, we have a black market right now. We have a black market that's being driven supposedly by responsible retailers. To me, the solution to solving that black market is not to legitimize it by saying, all right, retailers, you've been doing the wrong thing all along here. Uh, We'll make it even easier for you now and allow you to sell these products, you know, point blank to young children and addict them. I think having this importation ban makes a lot of sense. We don't manufacture these products in Australia. There's not a big vaping plant going on. And then if the states do their bit and ban the retail sale, we won't see the emergence of that either. Becky, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. My pleasure. Dr. Becky Freeman is Associate Professor of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Short-sightedness, myopia, is on the rise around the world, and it's estimated that by 2050, one in two Australians will be short-sighted. Today, it's around one in three to one in five, depending on who you listen to. Some countries, particularly in Asia, have prevalences of myopia that are already much higher. 
There are various reasons for short-sightedness, but one is that the eyeball becomes longer for both genetic and environmental causes. When it becomes longer, the images enter the eye, they focus in front of the retina, which is like the cinema screen at the back of the eye, rather than on it, making them blurry. Spectacles and contact lenses refocus the light rays. It's a problem that starts in childhood and often is thought from too much time spent inside focusing on the near distance rather than outside as we were designed to be, focusing on far horizons. Myopia isn't necessarily benign. It's associated with an increased risk of retinal detachment, glaucoma, cataracts and even macular degeneration, all of which threaten sight. Apart from putting every child outside to play, there may be a medication which could slow the progression of myopia. It's atropine eye drops, the same drops the optometrist or ophthalmologist puts in your eye to dilate the pupils. A trial in children in Hong Kong has found that atropine at the right dose might reduce the incidence of myopia in children. And there's been a trial in Western Australia losing, using a lower dose. One of the researchers was Dr. Samantha Lee of the Lions Eye Institute at the University of Western Australia. Welcome to The Health Report. Thank you, Norman. Thank you for having me. What did you do in this study? In the Western Australia study, we recruited 150 children with myopia. And we put a, a third of them on a placebo eye drop and two thirds of them on low concentration atropine eye drops, which is at 0.01% dose. Now, we followed these children through two years and we found that those on the atropine eye drops had slower myopia progression than those in the placebo group. Significantly slower? I mean, to the extent that what you didn't need a new prescription or what? Yes, significantly slower than um, than before than when compared to before they joined the study, um, and compared to the placebo group. So before they joined the study, these children had a myopia progression at a rate of 0.5 diopters or more per year. So these children had to change glasses. Um, every year or more frequently than that. Um, but during the study, those children on the atropine eye drops had significantly slower progression. Any side effects? I mean, when you, when you go to the ophthalmologist and you get the eye drops or the optometrist um, and your pupils dilated, your vision's a bit blurry and you don't like the sunlight glare, it gets a bit painful. Absolutely. So that was one of the things we were concerned about. So we used a really low dosage at 0.01% in these children. Um, in, in the eye clinics, we typically use 1% or 0.5%. And even for children of Asian descent that these were previously tested in Singapore, these higher concentrations resulted in such high incidence of adverse effects. It was very uncomfortable to use. So in Western Australia, we trialed a lower version and we found that this was tolerable for all of the children, more than 90% of the children rather. But there is, an, there is a thought that if you've got a darker pupil um, or iris, that, you're, um, that you absorb more atropine and you don't transmit it into the eye for, what, for whatever reason atropine works because nobody really knows why it works. And therefore, that could explain why some kids of Asian origin need higher doses. Did you find an equal effect between the European origin kids versus Asian kids in your sample? I'm very glad you asked that question because, yes, we did find that it is more effective in children of European descent, whereas the 0.01% eye drops that we tested, it didn't do so well in children of East Asian or South Asian descent who may well also have a genetic propensity to short-sightedness. 
Yeah. Um, although we did try and control for that because we had we had the same inclusion and exclusion criteria for all the children. A parent is going to ask, well, how long do you have to use these drops for? Because it's hard to get drops into a kid. And uh, and if you stop, is it going to rebound and you'll be back to where you started? That is definitely one of the things that researchers worldwide are still studying. So in the Singapore studies that was conducted in early 2000s, they, do, they did find that the higher the concentration of atropine eye drops that were used, it is more effective, but it also resulted in a rebound effect. But then again, if you use the if you use a lower concentration once, it the effect kind of stabilizes. So it you still see a continued myopia control effect even after at least one year after children stopped using these atropine eye drops. Now we don't know how long the children can go on without using these atropinidrops before the myopia comes back and start progressing again. So a lot longer term follow-ups are required. So if a parent's listening to this and they've got a child who's just had their first prescription for specs because of short-sightedness, what would you suggest they do? I would suggest them to talk to their optometrist, have the optometrist follow them up. Um, if it is progressing quite quickly, um, atropine eye drops are worth trying. Otherwise, they can just take preventive measures like spending more time outdoors. Um, it has been shown to be, it, it could be effective in reducing the progression of myopia if you want a cheaper way. Because right now, each month um, of using atropine costs about 40 to $50. And some people aren't willing to fork out that much money. And the local so park. if you want something that's free. Go to the, go to the <laughs> local park. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Samantha, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Samantha Lee is a research fellow at the Centre for Ophthalmology and Visual Science at the University of Western Australia and the Lions Eye Institute. Well, that's the health report for this week. We'll see you again next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.